0: Tonight, our topic is called the Scarlet Harlot, and this is a very important topic. I'm so glad you've joined us tonight. As we begin, would you please bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this evening, as we open the Bible, we pray for your spirit to be here. Lord, especially tonight, I ask for a special portion of the Holy Spirit, because this is a chapter that's not only controversial, but it also has a very pointed message, and I pray that your spirit would speak to each heart tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you remember last night we saw in Revelation 12, there was a woman. Remember her? She stands on the moon. She, has the, she wears the sun. And on her head, she has a crown of 12 stars. We saw that in our presentation last night. We also saw another woman. This woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. She was sitting on a beast. And the Bible told us yesterday we looked and saw that in Scripture, a woman is symbolically is a symbol for a church. By the way, in the quiz today, there was the quote from, there was a reference to Ephesians 5.25. Do you remember that statement that says, husband, love your wives even as Christ loved the church? That's probably one of the simplest analogies to see that Christ views the church like a husband loves his wife. Does that make sense? Now, just to clarify, I said this yesterday, when you have a pure woman in in the symbolic languages of scripture, it represents a pure church. And when you have a corrupt woman in the symbolic languages of scripture, it represents a corrupt church. Does that make sense? Let's talk about the second woman. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a what, everyone? A woman sit upon a what? A scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and what else? Scarlet color. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. Now, please look at this carefully. We're going to talk about this. Mystery, what else? Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the what? Kind of a grotesque picture, right? She's drinking blood. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration now in the bible names were always indicative of character so in scripture when you read about let's say for example abraham abraham meant the father of many nations right when you read about jacob it originally meant supplanter but later his name was changed from jacob to israel which means one who has victory with god and so As we go through these different names in the Bible, please keep in mind that that same mentality applies to this prophecy. The Bible gives us a multitude of her names, and that's important because we want to know more about this woman. Did you notice that one of her names, I highlighted it, is Babylon? Now, if you've been with us in the seminar, I know you've noticed that we've talked about Babylon as a historical kingdom that reigned about 2,600 years ago. But when Revelation describes the word Babylon, it's not making reference to that. And how do I know that? I want you to notice Isaiah 13. Just look at this little prophecy here. When Isaiah wrote these words, Babylon was at the zenith of its power. Basically, Babylon at this time was not only one of the most developed and powerful nations, but it was, it was like a pillar of that ancient civilization. It was in science, and architecture, and all of these things. Now, please notice what Isaiah predicted. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be, so he's making a prophecy, shall be as when God overthrew what two cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. And it shall never be inhabited. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, people thought this was going too far. Because he said that Babylon would become Desolate, like no one would ever live in it again. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. Their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. Owls shall dwell there and satires shall dance there. And wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. Now let me pause. Did you know that when Babylon fell, so basically Babylon fell sometime around 539 BC, when it fell, successive leaders of the kingdoms that came and conquered Babylon tried to resurrect her to greatness. In fact, one of the people that spent a lot of time there was Alexander the Great. If you go back and read history, you will discover that Alexander the Great actually went and started digging through the ruins of ancient Babylon Scholars say he found the original foundation for the Tower of Babel. But what's very interesting is that Alexander was superstitious, and strange things were happening there, and eventually he gave up. Like, he completely abandoned this project. Fast forward 2,300 years. A guy comes along by the name of Saddam Hussein. You can look this up. Saddam Hussein tried to resurrect Babylon too. And i don't need to tell you that that didn't that didn't work because of something called the united states okay but in the end what ended up happening is all of these men did not realize that isaiah had predicted it would never be resurrected or built or dwelt in again now if you want to disprove the bible you just have to try to redo that but you know you know that won't work right now why am i saying this at the end of time When the woman is called Babylon, it's not talking about literal Babylon anymore. Are you with me? Because Babylon will never be rebuilt again literally. If that's clear, can you say amen? Okay, so with that in mind, I want to remind you of a principle that I've been sharing with you in this seminar that is important when you study the Bible. Whenever you study a topic in the Bible, try to go back to the first place that it ever appears in Scripture. Now, This is free. I'm going to just share this with you. There's a principle of Bible study that's called the law of first appearance. And what it says is the first time something appears in the Bible, it sets the meaning for what it will mean throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay? It's called the law of first appearance. It is found in textbooks of theology. But it is something that is a principle that governs the study of the Bible. Are you with me so far? The first time the story of Babylon appears in the Bible is after the flood, okay? Now, if you know the book of Genesis well, you will remember that God sent a flood in Genesis chapter 6. And then when you read the successive chapters, basically you have the after effects of the flood, and then Noah begins to, you know, come out of the ark, and then, you know, his family repopulates. Now in Genesis 11, notice what happens. The Bible says... And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a a tower, whose top may reach unto where? Unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the what? And the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing is will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Now, I'm going to just read one more verse. Therefore, is the name of it called what? Babel. Because the Lord... They did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now, let's pause. I want you to reason with me. I want you to think with me for a moment. Why would God be upset with a building project of a tower? Now, let's review something. They said, let's build a tower whose top may reach to where? To heaven. Now, just a reminder, in the Bible, the word heaven can refer to one of three places. Heaven is where the birds fly. What do we call that in our language? the sky. Okay, heaven, it also be where the stars are. Abraham looked to the heavens, and that we call, what do we call that? Space, right? And then heaven can also be where God dwells, right? And Paul calls that the third heaven. When it says here that they said, let's build us a tower whose top would reach to the heavens, it's talking about the sky. Does that make sense? Now, the first question you have to ask yourself is, why would these people want to build a tower? whose top would reach all the way up into the sky. Now, do you know why they built skyscrapers in Tokyo? Do you know why? Because they're running out of room. <laughs> in other words, land is precious, and so instead of building horizontally, they build vertically, right? But this is after the flood. There's hardly any people on planet Earth. And now these people are saying, let's build us a tower whose top will reach up to where? To heaven. Now, this is why God was upset. You see, after the flood, God told his his faithful servant Noah, he said, I do set my bow in the cloud as a covenant, as a reminder that I will not send a flood again to destroy the earth. Does that make sense? But the builders of this tower, they didn't believe God. And their desire to build a tower was in defiance of belief in what God had promised. Does that make sense? Not only that, it was their hope that if another flood should come, they could save themselves by their own work. Are you with me? Babylon, okay, by the way, some of you are questioning what is Babel? Babel is a Hebrew term. Now. Later on, in the Old Testament even, you'll find the term Babylon, okay? And then, of course, in the New Testament, Babylon is also mentioned. This is really a Greek term, okay? And so just to let you know, Babel or Babylon, it's talking about the same thing. But it's very interesting. We have an English word that comes from this word Babel. You know what it is? Babel, right? To Babel is when someone says something and you don't know what they're talking about, right? Right? And this is true. You can check the etymology of the word baby. The word baby comes from the word Babel, okay? Because a baby, unless you're the mother, you have no idea what the little creature is saying. Isn't that right? So please understand that this incident was indicative of the origins of ancient Babylon. Babylon was founded originally because the people did not believe what God had said. Are you with me so far? And by the way, I should have put this, but I didn't. It was also built upon a desire to save himself by his own works. Are you with me so far? All right, let's move on. Now we're, move, we're going over to the book of Ezekiel. Here's what it says. He said also to me, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. Now, these directions are significant. Please note. And behold there sat women weeping for who? Tammuz. Now, this is very insightful. Ezekiel mentions a name that you can go to the dictionary or encyclopedia and you can look this up. Tammuz was the Babylonian god of fertility. Now, let me tell you a little history. If you go to Genesis 10, there's a man there named Nimrod. Are you with me? Nimrod was a real person. In fact, the name Nimrod means we shall rebel. That's what the name Nimrod means. Now, I don't need to tell you that he was a person who was in rebellion against God. Nimrod was one of the ancient architects of Babylonian religion and the city itself. Nimrod had a wife. Her name was Semiramis. You can look this up. Him and and his wife were the architects of the religion of Babylon, which was, in, es- in essence, the worship of nature and the sun. Now, at some point, Semiramis killed her husband. And when she did, she obviously people didn't know that she did, but that's what history tells us. When she killed her husband, she taught her followers... That he was reincarnated into the S-U-N. Are you with me so far? So when he became reincarnated in the sun, she told her followers to worship him by giving homage to the rising sun. And so the worship of Babylon was often facing towards the east, which was where, I don't know which way is east, but which is where the rising sun would come. Are you with me so far? Now, this is very, very interesting. Semiramis, after her husband died, got pregnant. Obviously, it was through, you know, fornication. But she claimed that Nimrod had miraculously, um, you know, conceived in in her through this, this amazing arrangement. And, and don't miss this. This predated the the, birth, the virgin birth of Christ by thousands of years. Are you with me? So this was a counterfeit already that Satan had put in motion. But anyway, she claimed that he had uh, impregnated her, and when her child was born, she named him Tammuz. So Tammuz was a real person. It wasn't just some made-up God name. It was a real person. We don't know a lot about Tammuz, but what we do know is that he only reached up to his youth and then in his youth, his mother had him killed. Yeah, I know, terrible woman, right? But anyway, so when, she, when he died, she taught her followers that he was now reincarnated as the god of fertility. And you can, I think you can already imagine there were very licentious and debasing and vile acts that they used to celebrate in the springtime the arrival of Tammuz. Are you with me? Now, what's very interesting is that Tammuz was a real person. And after he died, he was worshipped and he was revered as though he were reincarnated or or as though he were still conscious. Does that make sense? So this was part of the religion of Babylon. Babylonian religion also paid homage to and worshipped the dead. Does that make sense? That's not all. And then Ezekiel 8 verse 15, it then he said unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man? If you, by the way, if you look at these passages, we're reading one passage after the other. O son of man, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple, now you have to remember where they are. They're at the temple now. At the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about five and twenty men, with their backs towards the temple... And their faces towards the which direction? Towards the east. And they worship the what? The sun towards the east. Now, I got to tell you something about the ancient tabernacle. Do you remember when God told Moses, build me a tabernacle? That tabernacle was portable. It could move. And every time it moved, God gave special instruction that when you pitched it, a person walking into the sanctuary would always without fail would always have their back to the east and would be walking from east to west. Does that make sense? Because God did not want, even back as far as the Israelites, the ancient practice of worshiping the sun, it had come from Babylonian, um, you know, uh, Babylonian religion. God did not want to confuse the worship of Jehovah with the worship of the sun. Does that make sense? And so always without fail, when they worshiped God, Jehovah, they walked into the tabernacle. But here now you have Israel in apostasy. And what are they doing? People at the temple have their back to the temple and they're facing the east and they're worshiping the what? The sun. Remember, this was the worship of Nimrod. So Babylon was not only founded upon a doubt and disobedience of God's word, a desire to you know save yourself by your own works. It included an homage to the dead, but it also included worshiping God. The sun. okay? Now, if you go to Revelation 17, verse 1, the Bible says, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth, now please look closely, with whom the kings of the earth have committed what? Fornication. Now, the term fornication in scripture is simply the illicit union of two parties. And what we have is the woman is a church. She should be united to who? To Christ, right? But instead of being united to Christ, the Bible is telling us that this woman is fornicating with the kings of the earth. Now, a woman represents a church. A king in the Bible represents the state, a a political power. So what you have is the woman is being united because fornication is the illicit union of two parties. Does that make sense? So what's happening is you have this symbolism of the union of church and state. Does that make sense? So, Babylon was not only a foundation of something which was a doubt and disobedience to God's word and salvation by works and homage of the dead and a worship of the sun, but it included a union of the church and state power. Now, believe it or not, this next portion of the study, if you understand this, you will realize. That not just me, um, but several prominent evangelicals have been on record as, ex- as saying the exact same thing that I'm saying to you tonight. One of the most famous ones is John Hagee. You know, John Hagee was one of the prominent evangelicals who got, basically he got distanced from John McCain because of this sermon. Okay, but please listen to this. Who is this woman? The Bible says that the woman which thou sawest is that great what? Great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Here's what we know about the woman of Revelation 17. She's a city. Point number two. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads. Now let's review. The woman sits on a beast that has seven what? Heads. Now the angel explains. The seven heads are seven what? Mountains on which the woman sitteth. So here's the second clue. The woman is a city that rests on seven mountains. Are we together so far? Third clue. And saying alas alas that great city that was clothed in fine linen purple and scarlet decked with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour so great what riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. Here's what we know about this woman. She's a city. She sits on seven mountains. And it's very wealthy. Fourth point. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of. So here's the fourth point. Not only is she a city that sits on seven mountains that's very wealthy, but she has a history of persecuting God's faithful people. Now, I think you already know. The woman here is a symbol for the Roman papacy, okay? And let me just say this point. Some have come to my seminar and said, now, you talk a lot about the Catholic Church, and, and I want to be very clear. It's not that I have anything against them. It just happens to be that prophecy points to this power as playing a huge role at the end of the world. And make no mistake if you could turn the clock back a hundred years and you went to every church that was a Protestant church, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist. Every church was saying the exact same thing that I'm sharing with you tonight. Every church, I mean, without exception. And I can show you quotes from all of these different scholars from those churches, Martin Luther, John Wesley, John Calvin. I could show it to you. The point is that prophecy says that this power holds a great role at the end of the world. Now, how is this true? Well, number one, is the papacy, is this a city, yes or no? Yeah, everybody knows that Vatican City is the papacy. And not just that. Did you know that it sits on seven hills? This is actually, there's poems about this, okay? Is she wealthy? I don't even need to tell you that the Vatican's holdings are not in the billions. It's like in the trillions. I'm talking about priceless relics of art. Things that have inestimable value. But you know this. The Catholic Church is divided into like dioceses, right? Each diocese, they're worth millions. I would say billions. But anyway, I'm just trying to be conservative. There's books on this. Um, If you're interested and you're watching this, there's a book by a man by the name of Avril Manhattan. Back in the 50s, he wrote a book called The Vatican's Billions. That was back in the 50s. Okay, but anyway, has she persecuted? Yes. Everybody knows that the Catholic Church has a history. The Inquisition is the best example. But it's not just that. Now I'm going to come to Revelation chapter 17 verse 5 and I want you to notice upon her forehead was a name written mystery Babylon the great the what the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now I want to pause here for a moment. There's only one criteria to be called a mother. You have to have children. Does that make sense? Now this is going to sound strange, but you go back tonight and you check me on this, okay? In the Bible, in the Old Testament, prostitution existed among women and men. It did. A male prostitute in the Bible was called a dog. I know that sounds ironic considering today's slang terminology, but that's true, okay? In The Bible, a male prostitute was called a dog. And you can look this up. This is in the book of Leviticus. Like, it talks about the price of a dog, and it's talking about a male prostitution. A female prostitute in the Bible was called a harlot. Now, I want to ask you to look at this verse 17, chapter 17, verse 5, and I want you to tell me, does this woman of Revelation 17, does she have children, yes or no? Yeah, because the clue is she's called what? Mother. Okay, question number two. What gender are her children? They're female because she's the mother of harlots. Now, don't miss this. In the symbolic passages of the scriptures, a woman is a symbol for a church. So, who are these daughters? The first clue is that they're unfaithful like the mother. They're called harlots, right? You ever heard that expression the apple never falls very far from the tree right okay so they're called harlots here's the second clue they have characteristics of the mother because the mother is also called a harlot right so what do we know about the papacy's errors the papacy is a classic example of what the bible calls babylon it has a doubt and disobedience to god's word i mean the bible says don't worship idols but they have in their liturgy the veneration of these statues of mary of Peter, of all these other apostles. I don't even think I need to go into that. Do they worship the dead? You better believe it. If you are a Catholic, you pray to St. Michael and St. Jude and all these different saints, guess what? The Bible teaches that the dead are asleep in the graves awaiting the resurrection. But that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. They teach that you can pray and you can light candles, all this thing, and that's classic. By the way, do they worship the sun? Now, this is a very interesting point, And I'm going to recommend a book. It's by an author by the name of, um, it's called The Two Babylons. And it's by an author by the name of Alexander Hislop. Now, H-I-S-L-O-P. Now, that book, the whole point of the book is that Rome is really, or, or the papacy is really the rebirth Of Babylon in modern times when you look at their artwork when you look at all of these things all of it is really the worship of the sun and I don't have time to really elaborate on that but I do want to say and of course this is not a secret and I've mentioned this to you the reason why papacy has Sunday as the day of rest is because when Constantine wanted to convert his empire to Christianity they were Mithraists. Mithraism was the worship of the sun. They simply rebranded the worship of the sun into Christianity. And so I know this sounds obvious, but you can look this up. The first day of the week, Sunday, was the day that the ancient pagans worshiped the sun. Does that make sense? And I know that this sounds very simplified, but if you check everything that I'm saying, you will find that it's true. The papacy is, a, is an amazing combination of a church and state power. It has a seat at the United Nations. It's a, it's a country, but it's a church. There's no other country on earth that has this type of a dual nature. So this is definitely them. But, you know, are there churches today that definitely disregard elements that are found in the Bible? You better believe it. I mean, we've in just in the seminar we've said Sunday is not a holy day. It, you know, we, we've said that multiple times. We've said in the seminar that if you know the Bible teaches that the dead are asleep, that means nobody's looking down from you in heaven right now. Does that make sense? And we've talked about a number of other teachings that are very common in Christianity, but just are not found in the Bible. Now, isn't it also true that in in uh, modern modern christendom and i think i read this to you the other night the only heirloom that protestant churches have not given up from their breakaway from the papacy because i think i mentioned last night how did the baptist church get started they broke away from the catholic church on baptism how did the methodist church get started they broke away from the catholic church on bible study and you know so forth and uh, lutheran church all of these churches they broke away But the one thing that they still never uncovered or kept was the day of rest or their day of worship, which was Sunday. So what does that mean? That means that the mother church in Revelation 17 is the papacy, but the daughters is simply representing the Protestant churches of today that hold these same errors. And the Bible tells us what's going to happen to Babylon. I want you to notice what God says in Revelation 18 verse 1. After these things... I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies how much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously so much torment and sorrow give her for she saith in her heart i said a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow now what does the bible predict about babylon that god is going to punish her but before he does that God has his people in Babylon. I know that may surprise you, but I want you to look closely at what Revelation 18 verse 4 says. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her what? Now, please look at that carefully. It does not say, come out and be my people. It doesn't say that. It says, come out of her what? My people. So the message from heaven is saying, come out of those churches that still retain the errors of the mother church, Sunday worship, misunderstanding of the state of man's condition and death, come out of her that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, folks, I want to make this point because I cannot emphasize this enough. When we hold a seminar like this, almost 90% of the time, our guests are clientele of other churches, and I've learned over the years, I have met many faithful Christians from all different backgrounds and all different religions, and I never assume, and nor do I ever, you know, think, well, you know, these people, they're, they're deceit. No, I know that. God has led you and has guided you and has allowed you to learn and and grow in the churches that you've been in. Does that make sense? But what I do know is that the Bible is very plain on who the woman of Revelation 17 is. It's very plain. Not only that, but the Bible is plain about who her daughters are. And the Bible is very clear that God has a message for his people in these churches. That message is not from me. It's from heaven, and the message says to come out of her what? My people. Let me tell you, friends, God doesn't just call them to come out and just wander about aimlessly. The Bible says that God's last day, people look like this. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the what? The commandments of God, and they have the faith of Jesus. Now, last night I talked to you about the remnant church, and I shared with you One of the earmarks of God's last day people is that they keep the commandments. Now, I've emphasized this in the seminar. Keeping the commandments does not save us. But Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And I've had this conversation with some of you. Why is it that we would keep just nine of the commandments when there's actually how many? There's ten. The other point that I do want to make is that God's church last day church they're not going to teach people that your loved ones are looking down on you or you know some other variant of that we've said it very plainly in this seminar the bible says when you want to comfort someone who's lost a loved one tell them jesus will come with a shout with the voice of the archangel the trumpet of god the dead in christ will rise if you're alive that time you'll meet them in the air and then from that point on you'll forever be with the lord friends let me tell you that is a blessed hope that we have in jesus amen do you realize that God's last day church is going to uphold the Sabbath? Let me tell you why. Because of all the commandments, Satan knows this is the one commandment that most of the Christian world has forgotten about. And you know what's ironic? This is the only one that starts with the word what? It starts with the word remember. Isn't that that's the irony of it, right? Um, and you know, I believe that. There is no perfect church. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's no church that you'll ever go to where every person is perfect inside of it. Does that make sense? But I do wanna say this. There is a church that is teaching a perfect platform of truth, which means they're teaching what the Bible actually says. And I've had people say to me, well, I think that the church that I go to is the remnant church. But in the end, the Bible is very clear about what the remnant looks like. The remnant is keeping the commandments of God. They are keeping the Sabbath. They're teaching the truth about what happens to people when they die. And this is really how God's people are distinguished in the Bible at the end of time. You know, there is a church like that today. As Lewis shared with you, he made a decision to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I made my decision to become a Seventh-day Adventist. And this is what I read in John chapter 10 verse 16. Jesus said, "Other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd." Friends, please tell me practically speaking, how do we hear Jesus' voice? Do we hear him talk to us in our I mean, do you know what I'm saying? How do we hear his voice practically today? How? Through the word of God. Does that make sense? Now, <laughs> I can tell you that through the years, one of the biggest obstacles that people face when they want to follow truth is the people that they've developed relationships with. Your friends at church, your pastor, your, your, your friends in your group, your, even your own family members. Jesus said to his followers, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. By the way, what does a sword do? It divides, right? (laughs) And then he said, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now, let me just make two points here. When I, over the years, have invited people to make a stand to join God's remnant church, I've discovered that at this point in the seminar, people come because they genuinely believe that we are teaching the word of God. I believe that if any of you thought I was pulling the wool over your eyes or I was twisting scripture, you would just stop coming. The truth is that what What keeps people from making a decision very often is they count the cost. I've been going to my church for 20 years. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm actually an elder. I'm a deacon. I'm a deaconess. I'm involved. I'm active. I'm involved. Now, those things may all be true. And I do not in any way downplay your your participation. The point that I want to make is when we follow Jesus, when we really follow him, At some point, Jesus asks us to take up our cross. Now, what does that mean? I had someone that pulled out out of their shirt a little golden chain with a cross on it, okay? And that's not really what Jesus means when he says, take your cross. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He actually prayed this prayer. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Do you remember that? But then he said, nevertheless... Not my will, but thy will be done. So I want you to listen carefully. The cross was not something that Jesus naturally desired. Does that make sense? His human nature, nobody nobody in their right mind would want that suffering and that shame and that torture. But Jesus knew that while he did not naturally desire the cross, he knew that that was his father's will. To take up your cross is to deny what your natural human inclination may want. And what do we want? We don't want conflict. We don't want change. We just want to stay in the same place we've always been. Isn't that true? We don't want to shake the boat. We don't want to cause problems at home. But in the end, Jesus says, you have to take your cross. And let me tell you, friends, in every person's life, if you're really following Jesus... There comes a place when you have to take up your cross. I want you to know that in the early Christian church, there were people that were being thrown to lions, first century AD. And that was the price that they paid to follow Jesus. Do you know Christianity today is so watered down that today it's like churches have adopted what's called the McDonald's principle. You know what that is? Give the customer what he wants. They want entertainment? We're gonna do drama. Do they want music? We're gonna make a concert for them. Do they want fellowship? We're gonna make this the best social club they've ever been. But in the end, at the bottom of all of this, the question is, are they teaching the word of God? I wanna tell you a quick story. When I was doing a seminar in Alberta, Canada, we had a guy coming to our seminar who listened to everything, and we made appeals he never made a move but the issue of the sabbath would not leave his mind he just could not erase that this was part of the ten commandments so i learned from the pastor there that a few weeks later he walked into church and he said pastor okay i'm done i'm ready to join Pastor said, do you have any Sabbath work conflict? He said, I'm going to take care of it. Now, up in Alberta, they have this place called the Tar Sands. You may have never heard of it, but it's a place where the oil is mixed with sand. But there's huge deposits of it, and they've learned how to extract the oil, get rid of the sand, so on and so forth. Anyway, he's an engineer, but he had a special job. You know that when you send down a drill bit into the ground, the tip of that drill is actually the most valuable. That little tip It can be several million dollars. It's covered in diamonds, industrial diamonds, but it's covered in diamonds. Well, sometimes they get stuck. They have two choices. They can just wrench it off and break it and leave it in the ground, or they call this guy Wayne. His job, he's an expert in soil composition, geology, and he basically figures out how to get it out. That's his job. Anyway, he gave notice at his workplace. He said, look, I can't work now from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. They said, "If you can't, you can't work for us. Because what happens if we call you in an emergency? You know, we got we got, you have to come." He said, "If I can't, you know, if I can't have these days off, I'm done." They said, "All right, you know, we gotta let you go." Well, in that area, there's actually a few oil companies that are well known, and when they heard that this guy Wayne he had quit, one of the competing oil companies called him up, <laughs> and they actually said, "Hey, is it true that you quit?" He said, "Yeah." They said. We want to hire you. He said, well, I just want to tell you I can't work from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. They said, what if it's an emergency? He said, you only call me if it's an emergency. I can't work from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. They said, okay, you're hired. But it was like the weekend and they weren't going to hire him until Monday. Well, guess what? Before Monday came, his old boss called him up and he said, hey, look, is it true that you're getting ready to sign with the, you know, he said, yeah, it's true. They said, look, just come back. You don't have to work on Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. By the way, just to give you an idea of his ability, every four years, he deposited in cash $1 million in his bank account. That's how much he was able to save after all of his living expenses. Every four years, he deposited a $1 million in the bank, okay? So here was a, a lucrative job, but here's what happened to this guy. He, he started studying about this, this message that we've been sharing with you night after night, and he realized, you know what? I want to do something more for God. So he went on a mission trip. He went overseas and started preaching. And he never came back. He stayed as a missionary. And he's been working as a missionary preaching the gospel. The reason I'm telling this to you is because I believe that you are here tonight not by chance. I don't believe in chance anymore because it's either providence or it's nothing. Does that make sense? And I believe that God knew That you are seeking truth. And tonight, before we pray, I want you to notice these words. This is not my words. This is the words of Revelation 18. Here's what it says. The voice from heaven, it literally says, come out of her what? My people. And what does that look like? For every person, it's different. For every person, it's different. Some people, it means you'll have to work out your situation with your job to keep the Sabbath. For some people, it would mean telling your spouse, you know what, I do believe that if I love Jesus, I want to keep his commandments, including the Sabbath. For some people, it means telling their pastor, you know what, (sighs) I just want to follow what the Bible says. What I do know is that as a minister and as a presenter of this program, all I can do is invite people to make a decision for Jesus. That's my job. And so tonight, before we pray, I just want to ask if you would like to make a commitment for Jesus tonight. And that commitment is simple. It simply is that you want to follow Jesus, you want to follow the truth, and that you're willing to take a step as scripture calls to come out of Babylon. And if that's your decision tonight, could I just ask you to just stand wherever you are? Just to say, Lord, this is my decision. I don't know what it's going to look like in the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But tonight, I am making the decision to follow Jesus. And I'll work out the details with your help. But I do want to come out of Babylon. I want to make a change. I want to follow Jesus and I want to follow the truth as it is in his word. If that's your desire tonight, would you just stand wherever you are and say, Lord, this is my commitment for you tonight. I don't know what the future holds, but this is my stand. Now, I don't want to hold it out long. I'm not going to sing you a song. I'm not going to make multiple invites. But I do want to just give this opportunity, if there's someone here tonight that wants to say, Lord, this is my decision. I need help. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know all the answers, but I believe that the Bible is true, and I do believe that you are calling your people to come out of Babylon. And if that voice is speaking to you, and if you'd like to make a decision tonight... Won't you just stand where you are? Won't you just say, Lord, I need help, but I'd like to follow you. I'd like to follow this truth. I'd like to make a decision to come out. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we close this meeting tonight, it's my prayer. Maybe there's someone in here right now that in their heart, they want to make a decision. They want to make a stand, but... Maybe they're not sure. Maybe they're not certain. Maybe there's still questions. My prayer is that you would speak to each heart in a way that they recognize that it's you speaking to them. I pray that as we continue through this series, that your voice will become clearer and clearer as we understand what the Bible teaches. We ask for these things. In Jesus' name we pray.